0: Listening to the Corbett Report, CorbettReport.com.
1: Welcome, my friends. And welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this first day of October, 2012. This is episode 245 of the Corbett Report podcast slaying the mythical winged unicorn beast. Now, the basic premise of today's episode is so basic and so simple that it really shouldn't need to be articulated at all. But unfortunately, given the type of mental conditioning that we have all been subjected to since basically the moment of our birth, it is nevertheless necessary to detail what I'm about to talk about. But we should keep in mind that just like any type of pervasive mental conditioning, it can be extremely difficult to wrap our heads around basic concepts in the exact same way that it would be difficult to articulate to a fish what water is, or it's difficult to articulate to a pre-scientific society what oxygen is and why we need to breathe it, simply the all-pervasiveness of certain myths make it difficult to explain to someone no matter how simple those concepts may be. And so it is that after the hundreds of hours, hundreds and hundreds of hours that we spent on this podcast and in my radio show and in the videos that we, uh, we've we put out here at CorbettReport.com and in all of the underlying documentation that supports all of that work, in all of that, we've been outlining the broad outline of a society that is more and more governed by fewer and fewer individuals who have their interest in suppressing your cognitive liberty, your ability to think for yourself, and your ability to govern your own life. And this all rests on a concept that in and of itself does not exist, that really only gains any sort of reality in our belief in its existence, so that like some mythical winged unicorn, we are being enslaved by something that doesn't even exist. This is a pretty amazing concept when you really start to think about it. So let's start to break that down. We are talking, of course, about government. Everyone these days who is awake to what's happening seems to be afraid of the government. We are afraid of this institution which has grown out of control and and absolutely Observedly out of control, for example, in the American context, when you start to take a look at the more and more insane ways that the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA and all of these functions of a state that has gone berserk are intruding more and more on the lives of everyday individual citizens, it is self-evident and self-explanatory that there is something very, very wrong with this institution we call government. But what is Government what is this thing that everyone is so afraid of? What is this thing which claims to have the authority over people's lives, which can set up these institutions that then employ these people who then dress up in uniforms and come to your door to take you off to a FEMA camp or whatever is going to happen or could happen in any conceivable dystopian future? Well, That's an extremely important question. And again, it's the type of question that is so basic that most people won't ever think to pose that question. What is government? What is this collective we that somehow we subsume our identity and somehow has the moral authority to do things that you and I would not have any moral authority to do? Again, this is a concept that when we start to break it down into its individual particulars, most people would understand each step of this conversation. But when you put it all together, it's so much of a mind-blowing experience that most people will immediately reject its implications. So let's start at bedrock moral principles. I think to enter the realm of basic ethical conversation, we have to come to an understanding of those axiomatic principles that I hope we can all agree on. And I think the bedrock upon which to build any moral system is namely the non-aggression principle, which is to say that there is no way under any form or any circumstance that you or I or any individual in the world has the moral authority to exercise force, to initiate force on another human being in order to make them do something something against their will that is always and undeniably wrong to do so is inherently ethically unjustifiable and many people when they hear that principle will have no dispute over it will not brook that that dispute will not attempt to form an argument counter to that because again it is a basic ethical principle now that, of course, doesn't mean that force or violence can't be used in self-defense if someone has initiated force against you. And uh, there are all sorts of situations we can come up with that are complicated and convoluted and And in what sense and in what situation does the person have the right to act. But the basic principle underlying it is, again, not very difficult and is not really one that brooks much dispute. That I don't have the right to come up to you with a gun in my hand and tell you to... Do X, Y, or Z, really anything at all uh, that you would not want to do voluntarily without that gun in my hand. And in the exact same way, that applies to each and every single member of our society, every single individual in the entire world. And yet, somehow, through some magical process which never gets articulated because no one seems to think to ask the question, when we subsume our individual identities in this institution this this vaguely defined concept called government suddenly there is this this, this thing, this collective we that has the moral authority to set up institutions that can dress men up in uniforms to come to your door to do that exact same thing, to, with the gun in their hands or with the implied threat of the gun standing behind them, tell you what to do and how to do it. And if you don't comply, you can be drug away and put into a cage and locked up there for as long as the authorities in this institution called government deem necessary. And if you resist in that process you can and likely will be killed, will be shot. The gun is always there. It is always the implied violence which undergirds this society we're living in. Now, this is a bizarre concept, something that you and I and no one else that we know has the ability, the moral authority to do suddenly becomes a morally acceptable or at the very least an acceptable behavior when it's done with a certain badge and a certain hat and a certain uniform on that individual, implying the a consent of a collective we that, uh, that somehow through some process of elision that we don't ever really articulate, uh, subsumes our individual identities and overrides our individual identities and overrides our individual moral obligations and responsibilities and abilities. Again, this is a bizarre concept, and it's been articulated in many different ways by many different people, but it is always underlying the same basic concept that there is this thing called government which somehow, for some reason, has the ability to use force to tell people what to do, to force people to do certain things even against their will, whether that be giving up their property or portions thereof or anything else that the government deems necessary for its citizens to do. So how does this process, how does this thing come into being? And what is this thing? Well, once again, it's my underlying concept today that government, this thing that we call government does not in itself, in and of itself exist. There are institutions that are created in the name of this government. So in, for example, in the American political concept, those institutions are Congress and the, the White House, the executive branch of government and, and the judiciary and uh, the Federal Reserve as as it's been put into law through Congress, through the Federal Reserve Act, or, or when you start to look at the different institutions, the, the Parks and Wildlife or or whatever, whatever individual institutions that we can identify as falling under that umbrella of government, those things that are set up in the name of government. But what is government itself? Well, In and of itself, it is merely a concept that is meant to be taken for granted. It is not meant to be questioned, because once it is questioned, it begins to fall apart. There is no collective we, no collective political we, which subsumes our individuality. And it is only our belief that there is some such concept that exists, that there is some magical, unseen, invisible, unsigned social contract to which you and I are not privy but somehow you and I are obligated to adhere to because of the existence of this so-called social contract and this idea of government we must then take for granted the authority of these various institutions that are set up under that name again it's a bizarre process and there are many different ways to show that this is in fact a ridiculous concept But since since there are many different forms of government, and it has taken many different forms over the years, and, and even the same types of government are vastly different in different political concepts, it's difficult to know exactly what to refute or how to refute it. But I think it's safe to say that not many people really believe, for example, in the divine right of kings or queens that believe that, for example, there are royal families that are inherently different from you and I and do not have to follow our basic moral principles so that a king or a queen can decide, for example, to kill that person or that person at their will and simply because of that divine right they have that ability. There aren't many people who are forcefully advocating for that or if there are, I don't think they really enter into the realm of... Of political debate, as I see it, serious political debate. So we'll brush aside things about uh, about autocracy and and about oligarchy and about uh, kleptocracy and other things that there aren't many people openly advocating for. And let's just take the the fundamental underlying governmental myth of our age and our political context wherever you might be listening to me, I'm sure it's somewhat the same. And uh, for those of you who are in a completely different political context, I'm sure you'll understand where this is coming from. And let's talk about some of the ideas that undergird the mythical institution of government as it applies in the concept of democracy. Now, again, democracy is a loaded term with many different applications and expressions and different forms. And there are people who will who will vociferously argue that well, America isn't a democracy; it's a republic, and uh, somehow that explains everything. As if America is not a representative democracy in which you do not vote for members of uh, your government to to be changed every two years, every four years, depending what cycle and what le- level and layer of government. It is a representative democracy. It is also a republic. Those things are not actually uh, mutually exclusive. So we'll leave that debate aside for the moment. But let's just talk about the broad concept of democracy and how it is fundamentally wrong. And I think to show that it's wrong on, on various different levels is particularly easy. And one of those levels is that in the concept of democracy, as it, it applies in our current political paradigm in most of the developed Western countries, it basically... Uh, relies on the concept that something can come from nothing. Of course, in and of itself, a complete contradiction and something that cannot inherently exist in this world. And yet people fervently wish it to be so. And unfortunately, the most vociferous advocates for this point of view that democracy magically make things appear from nothing are, shall we say, not the most intelligent members of our society.
2: Peggy Joseph took her daughter out of school early Wednesday for this. Her emotions ran high following Obama's speech.
0: It was
3: the most memorable time of my life. I, I, it was a touching moment. Because I never thought this day would ever happen. I won't have to worry about putting gas in my car. I won't have to worry about paying my mortgage. You know, if I, if I help him, he's going to help me. Do you know today how much money you're getting? No, I won't, but i waiting for a phone call. Where's the money coming from? I believe it's coming from the um, city of Detroit, or the state. Where did they get it from? Some funds that was given by Obama. And where did Obama get the funds? Oh, Obama might have gotten the funds from... Um, I have no idea the truth, He's the president. Why are you here? To get some money. What kind of money? Obama money. Where's it coming from? Obama. And where did Obama get it? I don't know. His stash. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where he got it from. But he's giving it to us to help we us. Know. We love him. That's we why we know. voted for him. Obama. Obama. You got Obama phone? Yes, everybody in Cleveland, low minority, got Obama phone. Keep Obama in president. You know, he well, gave us a phone. He gave he you a
4: phone. Do more. How do he give you a phone?
3: You you sign up. And you're in, you on full stamps. You on social security. You got low income. You disability.
1: This is the concept that if we just vote for the right person, they will be able to make things happen for us. They'll make things appear. They will be able to give us things. And if we vote for the wrong person, they will not want to give us things. They might even want to take those things away from us. So if we can just find the right government to put into place, the right leader to direct government, whatever that may be, that, that mythical winged unicorn beast, then somehow they will be able to make things appear manifest things for us. Of course, this is not actually what happens. And uh, whatever an Obamaphone might be or whatever people might think they're going to get from this or that political savior, it is, of course, only the fruits of that original sin that is committed by the very foundation of the institution that we call government, which is the abrogation of that fundamental ethical principle, the non-aggression principle. It is the fruits of that taking the implied threat of violence to people to say you must give up a certain amount of your property to us so that we can distribute it in the way that we want and hey maybe the right guy if you put the right guy into power he will use that that gun that implied threat of violence to go and take the the spoils from, from the rich people and give it to the poor or from that person and give it to me in more basic terms, which is unfortunately the way a lot of the voters tend to view things. Now, this is the fundamental underlying way in which government operates in a democratic society it is the idea that we must vote into power the people who will use that threat of violence that abrogation of the fundamental ethical injunction not to use violence and initiate force in order to make people do things against their will in the right way if they can just commit evil just that basic transgression that undergirds the entire system if they can just do it in the right way somehow this will all turn out for the best I hope that that doesn't need too much elaboration into why that viewpoint is wrong and that we can safely turn to another of the myths that undergird this entire democratic form of government that most of us live under in and of itself, which is the idea of voting, the idea of choosing the right person to direct this inherently evil institution, which operates by abrogating the basic fundamental underlying ethical injunction aka the non-aggression principle now this takes a fair degree of articulation so it i will leave this to a video that i recently put out that i will hope that you have seen so far on my website it's under the name the last word on voting on youtube it's on my website under the title beyond politics So I present to you the latest installment of my Last Word video series, and this is the second season of The Last Word, so this particular video is not included on my new Last Word DVD, available for purchase at CorbettReport.com, but it will be available in the future, in a future edition of that DVD series. But right now, let's watch this video on The Last Word on Voting. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, With the last word on voting. The sheer absurdity of the spectacle of the modern electoral process is nowhere more apparent than in the American presidential race. Just like the Olympic Games, every four years the presidential election comes around to distract and entertain the masses, and just like the Olympic Games, the proceedings are accompanied by much pomp, ceremony, and pageantry, and almost nothing at all of substance. The three-ring circus that is the race for the White House plays itself out with a tawdry predictability. The primaries energize the party base and introduce the key themes for the election cycle. Immediately, these are reduced in media coverage of the debates to memes, vague concepts, and one-word appeals to the lowest common intellectual denominator. Economy, jobs, defense, welfare. By the time the left-right farce of the two-way debates gets underway, any pretense that there are actual issues at stake have been brushed aside. It's no longer about politics, but vacuous slogans. Hope and change versus country first. Forward versus believe in America. It might as well be red versus blue, Coke versus Pepsi, or fork versus spoon. Remarkably, no one even notices the sleight of hand by which the political class and the media managed to transform the contest for the Oval Office into a meaningless contest of party slogans and political platitudes. Romney is the opposite of everything conservatives profess to hold dear. When governor of Massachusetts, he argued for the individual health care mandate he later pretended to oppose. In 2004, Governor Romney signed one of the toughest gun control laws in the country. In 2005, he advocated a cap and tax to combat anthropogenic global warming. Obama, too, is the precise opposite of his supporters' ideals. He supported the bailout of the too-big-to-fails in the 2008 financial crisis. He campaigned on getting lobbyists out of Washington, and then appointed lobbyist after lobbyist to his administration. He expanded Bush's war on terror into Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia, mainlined the use of drone strikes, and enshrined in Libya the doctrine that the president no longer even needs Congress's rubber stamp to start a war. In his time in office, he has started a presidential kill list that includes American citizens, and signed the NDAA allowing the U.S. military to arrest anyone, including Americans, anywhere, including on American soil, for any reason, and to detain them indefinitely without recourse to so much as a trial. None of this matters to the vast majority of voters. They'll lap it all up, mindless spectacle and all, following every move in the horse race, cheering when their erstwhile leader says something that sounds acceptable, and jeering when the other team's captain takes to the field. And when questioned on their own party's political platform, hardly one in ten will be able to articulate it. For those who can see past the facade to the empty, vacuous charade that is at the heart of this process, there are the easy explanations and trite solutions. It is a lack of education, they will argue. We need to invest more in civics education in the school system. It is a failure of the media, they will say. We need to strengthen media regulation to ensure fair and accurate reporting. It is a breakdown of the system itself, they will opine. We need electoral reform laws to fix the problem. All of these so-called solutions rest on the same flawed premises. That the democratic process is fundamentally sound, but our implementation of that process is faulty. Quite the contrary. The system is not broken. It is functioning exactly how it was designed to. This is a bitter pill for many to swallow. Surely there must be a political leader who conforms to our view of the way society should be run, at least most of the time on most of the issues. All we have to do is convince enough people to vote for this savior, and our societal redemption will be assured. In this worldview, salvation always comes from on high in Washington, D.C., and the entirety of the population keeps waiting for that political messiah who never arrives making do with the closest approximation they can find between the candidates that team republicrat and team demikin field each election cycle. But why is it that we, all of us in our so-called developed western democracies, put all of our political energies, to the extent we care at all anymore about these rigged political contests, into these elections that the vast majority of the voting public believes at best to be a necessary civic duty? Why do voters hold their collective noses once every four years and pull the lever, or better yet, touch the screen, for the lesser of two evils in order to keep the other guy out? Does anyone really believe that this process will ever achieve anything other than what it has already achieved over the preceding centuries? Does anyone believe that our modern electoral system is the best, sanest, noblest, or most ethical way of finding accord with those around us? does anyone believe that the corruption waste fraud abuse and rampant criminality of our political class is anything other than the inevitable end result of this centuries-old democratic experiment these are not rhetorical questions they are real questions with a real answer and that answer is no the reason that so few are willing to answer so plainly is because they are afraid of the implications of that answer that politics itself is not the answer Because if the answer is not to be found in voting in meaningless political pageants once every four years, then that begs the question, how is society to be organized? This is where we discover the heart of the fraud. The question itself implies that we need some centralized authority to make the judgments for for our society. It implies at base that we are but children, and that without mommy or daddy government to come in and organize our society, nothing would function. It implies that the answer is the precise opposite of what we have been told we need. Not government, but freedom. There will be those whose ideological blinders are so securely in place that a society without government will seem as unlivable to them as an atmosphere without oxygen. Having existed in the spacesuit bubble of statism their entire lives, they will be so deathly afraid of removing themselves from that cocoon that they will mock the mere suggestion that we take off our helmets and breathe the open air of a stateless society. Surely you jest, they will say. How can we live without government? These are the same people who will ask how our children will be educated in the absence of a government-run school system without bothering to ask how children were educated for the millennium of human history before government-run education. These are the same people who will ask how will we care for the sick and the unemployed without asking how charity and basic human decency functioned before it became a government-imposed monopoly. These are the same people who will ask how will we keep unscrupulous businessmen in line without government regulators, without bothering to notice that not a single banker has gone to jail for the worst economic crimes in the history of humanity, under the most extensive governmental regulatory regime in the history of humanity? These are the same people who will happily vote for whichever candidate promises to supply the most benefits for the country, without admitting that every single benefit that the government can bestow has been either stolen from the wallet of the taxpayer or, worse yet, created through debt-based money printing that puts the noose of mathematically unextinguishable debt around the necks of children yet unborn. These are the same people who will teach their children that it is always wrong for us to initiate the use of force on others and to take things against their will, but we'll see no contradiction in supporting a system called government that is made up of individuals' whom they grant the authority to do precisely that. In short, these are the people who will neither be honest with themselves nor look objectively at the system around them. They have not entered the plane of moral argument and will forever be wedded to a system they have never bothered to understand. They will cast their votes happily in the next election, patting themselves on the back for having done their civic duty, and will go back to their lives, Wondering why our society is falling apart, and what the next political candidate will promise to do about it. For the rest of us, there is the realization that the political system itself is just another form of enslavement. An enslavement that is all the more insidious because it asks us to buy into it. All we have to do is push a button, or pull a lever, or touch a screen once every four years, and we are now absolved of our moral responsibility. Ironically, this realization is is in itself liberating and puts the world into focus with crystal clarity. We are not cogs in some machine called society to be dictated to by some nebulous entity we've been taught to call the government or the authorities. We are free individuals freely interacting with those around us, bound by the moral injunction not to initiate force against others or take things from them against their will. We are responsible for our actions and their consequences, both positive and negative, negative. We are responsible for what we do or don't do to help those in our community and to make this world better or leave it to rot. There is no political messiah that will descend from the heavens to tell us what to do or to protect us from the bad men. All we have is ourself and our choices. We vote every day, not in some meaningless election, but in who we choose to associate with, what we choose to spend our money on, what we choose to invest our time and energy doing. This is the essence of freedom. For us, it's painful to watch our brothers and sisters getting swept up in the election cycle hype. We watch the sad spectacle not with a sense of scorn or derision, but with sadness for those who have not yet woken up to the reality of their mental enslavement. That sadness, however, is tempered by hope. Hope that one day, those poor voters who are trudging off to that booth to pull that lever will realize that all they are really doing is voting for which slave master they will allow to put the chains around their neck. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. Well, that is as plainly as I can possibly put it. We are not cogs in some machine called society. We are free individuals who freely interact and have that ability to voluntarily interact with those around us in order to create the society, the community that we want to live in and that we can choose to live in. Once again, it has to be stressed that just because government doesn't exist in the sense that there is no collective political we which somehow has the ability to, to do things on the moral sphere that you and I don't. Although that particular we, that concept, doesn't exist and thus cannot be used as an excuse for this or that to happen in the political sphere, it doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a community, as a society, as other people. It just means that there is nothing that subsumes our individual identity within that group. This is an important point because it's the difference between there being a society, a community in which we interact and voluntarily participate, and the necessity of this thing called the state, which is what statists will inevitably bring up. Well, there's society and there must be something to organize that society. Well, there is society and there are principles upon which societies are organized, but it doesn't mean that there has to be a mythical institution that we all believe in and give power to called the government, which can then actually tell us what to do and to, uh, to force people to do things against their will. Those things are not necessarily logically following one from another. So in order to articulate this point, I think we'll fall back on... Well, someone that I'm sure most of you will be familiar with. If not, I'm sure you can check him out. He is Murray Rothbard, and he wrote a book called The Ethics of Liberty. So let's listen to an excerpt from that book where he addresses this common statist argument that because there is society, there must be
2: a state. A common defense of the state holds that man is a social animal that he must live in society, and that individualists and libertarians believe in the existence of atomistic individuals, uninfluenced by and unrelated to their fellow men. But no libertarians have ever held individuals to be isolated atoms. On the contrary, all libertarians have recognized the necessity and the enormous advantages of living in society, and of participating in the social division of labor. The great non-sequitur committed by defenders of the state, including classical Aristotelian and Thomist philosophers, is to leap from the necessity of society to the necessity of the state. On the contrary, as we have indicated, the state is an anti-social instrument, crippling voluntary interchange, individual creativity, and the division of labor. Society is a convenient label for the voluntary interrelations of individuals, in peaceful exchange and on the market. Here we may point to Albert J. Knox's penetrating distinction between social power, the fruits of voluntary interchange in the economy and in civilization, and state power, the coercive interference and exploitation of those fruits in that light knox showed that human history is basically a race between state power and social power between the beneficent fruits of peaceful and voluntary production and creativity on the one hand and the crippling and parasitic blight of state power upon the voluntary and productive social process all of the services commonly thought to require the state from the coining of money to police protection to the development of law in defense of the rights of person and property, can be and have been supplied far more efficiently, and certainly more morally, by private persons. The State is in no sense required by the nature of man. Quite the contrary. Once again, that's Murray Rothbard
1: from The Ethics of Liberty, and you can either download that entire audio file from mises.org, or you can read the uh, the book online as well. So I will provide those links in the show notes for this episode. But uh, where does this all leave us in the end? If we do finally give up that ghost of government and stop believing in the winged unicorn creature that somehow claims to have authority over us and stop giving into the mentality which gives that institution power because it is us the individuals who exist in this society that give the state power by believing in it and by complying with its institutions where does that leave us, and what do we do if we are able to really overcome that hurdle and actually slay that winged mythical unicorn cre- creature that lives in our minds and supposedly tells us what to do? Well, there are a lot of points at which people will not really be able to overcome their indoctrination in statism, in the belief in government, because the thought of what lies on the other side of that mental chasm between here and there is too much for them to bear and there are a lot of different ideas that people use, different arguments that people use to try to refute this final hurdle and of clearing away the state. Well, yes, government has grown too big and it's too intrusive and it's too out of control, but if we could just get it down to the right size and if we could just get the right people in the positions of power, then then it could be better and we could we could live in a happy harmony because we need something to organize our society. Well, I'm here to tell you that our society is organized. It is our community. All of these people come together in ways that are so much more complex than any of us would ever think to believe. And... It is only because we have been growing grown up in this environment where we think that all of the, uh, every, all the manna comes from the, this heaven of government, that government provides everything that we see, that how would the roads uh, be built if there was no government? How would we have this or that institution? How would we have health care if there was no government? How would any of this function? We need this government in order to have the society that we have. Well, that type of argument can be refuted by showing the incredibly complex interlocking systems of organization that can come together through completely voluntary transactions without the threat of coercion or violence at any part of that node of interlocking activities. And that incredible complexity can be encapsulated in something as simple as a pencil—
0: I pencil my family tree as told to Leonard E. Reed. I am a lead pencil the ordinary wooden pencil familiar to all boys and girls and adults who can read and write. Writing is both my vocation and my avocation. That's all I do. You may wonder why I should write a genealogy. Well to begin with my story is interesting and next I am a mystery, more so than a tree, or a sunset, or even a flash of lightning. But, sadly, I am taken for granted by those who use me, as if I were a mere incident and without background. This supercilious attitude relegates me to the level of the commonplace. This is a species of the grievous error in which mankind cannot too long persist without peril. For, as a wise man observed... We are perishing for want of wonder, not for want of wonders. I, pencil, simple though I appear to be, merit your wonder and awe, a claim I shall attempt to prove. In fact, if you can understand me, no, that's too much to ask of anyone, if you can become aware of the miraculousness which I symbolize, You can help save the freedom mankind is so unhappily losing. I have a profound lesson to teach. And I can teach this lesson better than can an automobile or an airplane or a mechanical dishwasher because, well, because I am seemingly so simple. Simple? Yet not a single person on the face of this earth knows how to make me. This sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Especially when it is realized that there are about one and a half billion of my kind produced in the USA each year. Pick me up and look me over. What do you see? Not much meets the eye. There's some wood, lacquer, the printed labeling, graphite lead, a bit of metal, and an eraser. Just as you cannot trace your family tree back very far, so is it impossible for me to name and explain all my antecedents, but I would like to suggest enough of them to impress upon you the richness and complexity of my background. My family tree begins with what in fact is a tree, a cedar of straight grain that grows in northern California and Oregon. Now contemplate all the saws and trucks and rope and the countless other gear used in harvesting and carting the cedar logs to the railroad siding. Think of all the persons and the numberless skills that went into their fabrication, the mining of ore, the making of steel and its refinement into saws, axes, motors, the growing of hemp and bringing it through all the states to heavy and strong rope. The logging camps with their bed and mess halls, the cookery and the raising of all the foods. Why, untold thousands of persons had a hand in every cup of coffee the loggers drink. The logs are shipped to a mill in San Leandro, California. Can you imagine the individuals who make flat cars and rails and railroad engines and who construct and install the communication systems incidental thereto? These legions are among my antecedents. Consider the millwork in San Leandro. The cedar logs are cut into small, pencil-length slats, less than one-fourth of an inch in thickness. These are kill-dried and then tinted for the same reason women put rouge on their face. People prefer that I look pretty, not a pallid white. The slats are waxed and kill-dried again, how many skills went into the making of the tint and the kills, into supplying the heat, the light, and power, the belts, motors, and all the other things a mill requires? Sweepers in the mill among my ancestors? Yes, and included are the men who poured the concrete for the dam of a Pacific Gas and Electric Company hydro plant, which supplies the mill's power. Don't overlook the ancestors present and distant, who have a hand in transporting 60 carloads of slats across the nation from California to wilkes Bear Complicated Machinery Once in the pencil factory, $4 million in machinery and building, all capital accumulated by thrifty and saving parents of mine. Each slat is given eight grooves by a complex machine, after which another machine lays lead in every other slat, applies glue, and places another slat atop, a lead sandwich, so to speak. Seven brothers and I are mechanically carved from this wood-clinched sandwich. My lead itself, it contains no lead at all, is complex. The graphite is mined in Salon. Consider these miners and those who make their many tools and the makers of the paper sacks in which the graphite is shipped and those who make the string that ties the sacks and those who put them aboard ships and those who make the ships, even the lighthouse keepers along the way assisted in my berth and the harbor pilots. The graphite is mixed with clay from Mississippi in which ammonium hydroxide is used in the refining process. Then wetting agents are added, such as sulfonated tallow, Animal fats chemically reacted with sulfuric acid. After passing through numerous machines, the mixture finally appears as endless extrusions, as from a sausage grinder, cut to size, dried, and baked for several hours at 1,850 degrees Fahrenheit. To increase their strength and smoothness, the leads are then treated with a hot mixture which includes candelilla wax from Mexico paraffin wax, and hydrogenated natural fats. My cedar receives six coats of lacquer. Do you know all of the ingredients of lacquer? Who would think that the growers of castor beans and the refiners of castor oil are a part of it? They are. Why, even the processes by which the lacquer is made a beautiful yellow involves the skills of more persons than one can enumerate. Observe the labeling. That's a film formed by applying heat to carbon black mixed with resins. How do you make resins, and what prey is carbon black? My bit of metal, the ferrule, is brass. Think of all the persons who mine zinc and copper, and those who have the skills to make shiny sheet brass from these products of nature. Those black rings on my ferrule are black nickel. What is black nickel, and how is it applied? The complete story of why the center of my ferrule has no black nickel on it would take pages to explain. Then there's my crowning glory, inelegantly referred to in the trade as the plug, the part man uses to erase the errors he makes with me. An ingredient called factis is what does the erasing. It is a rubber-like product made by reacting rape seed oil from the Dutch East Indies with sulfur chloride. Rubber, contrary to the common notion, is only for binding purposes. Then, too, there are numerous vulcanizing and accelerating agents. The pumice comes from Italy, and the pigment which gives the plug its color is cadmium sulfate. No one knows. Does anyone wish to challenge my earlier assertion that no single person on the face of this earth knows how to make me? Actually, millions of human beings have had a hand in my creation, no one of whom even knows more than a very few of the others. Now you may say that I go too far in relating the picker of a coffee berry in far off Brazil and food growers elsewhere to my creation, that this is an extreme position. I shall stand by my claim. There isn't a single person in all these millions, including the president of the pencil company, who contributes more than a tiny infinitesimal bit of know-how. From the standpoint of know-how, the only difference between the miner of graphite in Salon and the logger in Oregon is in the type of know-how. Neither the miner nor the logger can be dispensed with any more than can the chemist at the factory or the worker in the oil field, paraffin being a byproduct of petroleum. Here is an astounding fact. Neither the worker in the oil field, nor the chemist, nor the digger of graphite or clay, nor any who mans or makes the ships or trains or trucks, nor the one who runs the machine that does the knurling on my bit of metal, nor the president of the company performs his singular task because he wants me, Each one wants me less, perhaps, than does a child in the first grade. Indeed, there are some among this vast multitude who never saw a pencil, nor would they know how to use one. Their motivation is other than me. Perhaps it is something like this. Each of these millions sees that he can thus exchange his tiny know-how for the goods and services he needs or wants. I may or may not be among these items. No mastermind. There is a fact still more astounding. The absence of a mastermind, of any one dictating or forcibly directing these countless actions which bring me into being. No trace of such a person can be found. Instead, we find the invisible hand at work, This is the mystery to which I earlier referred. It has been said that only God can make a tree. Why do we agree with this? Isn't it because we realize that we ourselves could not make one? Indeed, can we even describe a tree? We cannot, except in superficial terms. We can say, for instance, that a certain molecular configuration manifests itself as a tree, But what mind is there among men that could even record, let alone direct, the constant changes in molecules that transpire in the lifespan of a tree? Such a feat is utterly unthinkable. I, Pencil, am a complex combination of miracles, a tree, zinc, copper, graphite, and so on. But to these miracles, which manifest themselves in nature, an even more extraordinary miracle has been added. The configuration of creative human energies. Millions of tiny know-hows configurating naturally and spontaneously in response to human necessity and desire, and in the absence of any human masterminding. Since only God can make a tree, I insist that only God could make me. Man can no more direct these millions of know-hows to bring me into being than he can put molecules together to create a tree. The above is what I meant when writing. If you can become aware of the miraculousness which I symbolize, you can help save the freedom mankind is so unhappily losing. For if one is aware that these know-hows will naturally yes, automatically, arrange themselves into creative and productive patterns in response to human necessity and demand, that is, in the absence of governmental or any other coercive masterminding, then one will possess an absolutely essential ingredient for freedom, a faith in free men. Freedom is impossible without this faith. Once government has had a monopoly of a creative activity, such, for instance, as the delivery of the mails, most individuals will believe that the mails could not be efficiently delivered by men acting freely. And here's the reason. Each one acknowledges that he himself doesn't know how to do all the things incident to mail delivery. He also recognizes that no other individual could do it. These assumptions are correct. No individual possesses enough know-how to perform a nation's mail delivery any more than any individual possesses enough know-how to make a pencil. Now, in the absence of a faith in free men, in the unawareness that millions of tiny know-hows would naturally and miraculously form and cooperate to satisfy this necessity— the individual cannot help but reach the erroneous conclusion that mail can be delivered only by governmental masterminding. If I pencil with the only item that could offer testimony on what men can accomplish when free to try, then those with little faith would have a fair case. However, there is testimony galore. It's all about us and on every hand. Mail delivery is exceedingly simple when compared, for instance, to the making of an automobile or calculating machine or grain combine or milling machine or to tens of thousands of other things. Delivery? Why, in this area where men have been left free to try, they deliver the human voice around the world in less than one second. They deliver an event visually and in motion to any person's home when it is happening. They deliver 150 passengers from Seattle to Baltimore in less than four hours. They deliver gas from Texas to one's range or furnace in New York at unbelievably low rates and without subsidy. They deliver each four pounds of oil from the Persian Gulf to our eastern seaboard halfway around the world for less money than the government charges for delivering a one-ounce letter across the street. The lesson I have to teach is this. Leave all creative energies uninhibited. Merely organize society to act in harmony with this lesson. Let society's legal apparatus remove all obstacles the best it can. Permit these creative know-hows freely to flow. Have faith that free men will respond to the invisible hand. This faith will be confirmed. I, pencil, seemingly simple though I am, offer the miracle of my creation as testimony that this is a practical faith, as practical as the sun, the rain, a cedar tree, the good earth.
1: That was an essay entitled I Pencil by Leonard E. Ree, an American economist from the mid part of the 20th century, and I think that is a particularly mind blowing example of exactly what it is we're talking about the ways that voluntary interaction can create and organize incredibly complex processes to come up with even things that seem as simple as a pencil, but that imply a chain of supply that is almost impossible to imagine any one person being able to actually organize all of those activities. And certainly no one person could be a master of all of those activities. To that extent, a society, a community, people interacting with each other, the division of labor is necessary for the type of civilization that we have but it does not in any part, in any way, in any step of that process imply the need for a state, for government to come along and organize that for anyone all of those processes by which those supplies are are obtained have come about through voluntary participation, through voluntary exchange. And of course, we are living in a world in which there are people who will violate the fundamental principles of non-aggression, so who knows the ethical activities that are involved in any particular part of that supply chain. But at the very least, the idea that that entire chain could come about through voluntary participation is there. It does not in any way, shape, or form imply the necessity of violence or the necessity of the government. I think that's a particularly mind-blowing example of that because it goes to demonstrate how even the simplest things that we can possibly think about, about, such as an old-style pre-mechanical pencil or even the new mechanical pencils, are so vastly complex that no one person can possibly understand and, and apply all of the different parts of the process that are needed to make that come together. And that is exactly why I don't think the idea of overthrowing the government in our minds, and let's not forget the root of that word government and how it really means to have something governing your mind, well, let's, the, 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 one of the natural inhibitors to that step of overthrowing the government, that thing, that mythical beast that lives in our minds, that's that. claims to have authority over us, one of the things that inhibits us from doing that is this idea, well, what would we do? How would society work? How would we organize things if there wasn't that, that beast to be, be there in the middle to, to arbitrate our disputes, for example, to provide conflict resolution, to do all of the things that we claim that only government can do? Well, I think that iPencil and other works like that go some way towards demonstrating that no one is going to be able to outline in detail how every single functioning part of society is going to work or is going to interact with each other, how things are going to end up being created but that they can still be created is inherent in even that example of the pencil. There isn't one person who came along with how to do each and every single part of the each and every process of extracting each material and bringing them together and shipping and all of the different processes and technologies that are I- inherent in that, in that sim- simple single product, and yet they did all come together and they did not require government to do so. So that is an incredible example of that type of incredible detail which comes about through the spontaneous and voluntary interactions of millions and billions of people interacting throughout the globe that no one person can imagine so i think it is a uh, an invalid argument for someone to come along and say because you cannot tell me how exactly the the a governmentless a stateless society would function that i won't go along with it i think that this is fundamentally about that moral uh, idea we were talking about before, that I and no one else on this planet has the right to use force and violence to coerce to someone to do something against their will, and thus government cannot exist. And once we do that, and once we overthrow that that institution that claims to be the authority over us, then it's up to society itself how it's going to to function. And so people will come back with the inevitable Arguments about, well, status uh, this, status that, we need government for this, that, or the other. And uh, I think rather than having to hit each of those balls as they're pitched to us. I think we can use that, uh, that basic ethical principle as the, the underlying argument that we're working from. It's an argu- argument from principle, not an argument from effect. That isn't to say that there aren't ideas of how a stateless society could function. And of course, the one thing that everyone wants to know about is, well, who would make the laws? What laws would people follow? What if there was a dispute? What if people got into trouble? Uh, what if there was disagreements between people? Because of course, certainly there will be. Now, if someone comes along claiming that there will be no disputes in a stateless society or that uh, that there will be no time in which anyone gets... Uh yeah, it gets treated unfairly or that, that that no corruption or whatever can happen i think that would be absolutely unfair to do to say to imply that because it's it's a flat out lie of course there will always be when there are humans interacting there will always be disputes there will always be people who are treated unfairly and and thing, bad things will happen and they will continue to happen in any society in which humans are participating But that does not mean that we ever have to abridge that fundamental voluntary nature of the society we want to bring into effect. And that does not mean that there are not ways of arbitrating disputes without the need for government. You can still have a a system of voluntary participation. And what is the ultimate, real, only thing that you can do if you do not have the power to physically, violently coerce someone to do something against their will... What is the way that you can strike back at someone to whom you have been perceived uh, a perceived wrong has has been perpetrated against you by that person? What can you do in that situation? Well, of course, in a voluntary participatory society, the greatest threat that anyone can give to each other in a voluntary participatory way without the need for violence at all is merely to withdraw one's consent from p- future participa- p- participation in contracts with that other person that type of moral castigation, the type of uh, shunning someone from society, which is the real basis of a voluntary society and can have a huge effect. So reputation is extremely important in such a future society, and that would be the basis of, for example, economic transactions and, of course, one's ability to participate in economic transactions in such a society. This is a point that has been outlined in many ways. So let's turn to a, uh, I think, a fairly effective YouTube video that breaks down this principle.
4: We start with the premise that the widely shared beliefs in a society are don't harm other people, respect their property, That part of nature that you transform and make valuable becomes yours. And a violation of these principles is an attempt to live at the expense of others and cannot be allowed. In a small village this could work in a straightforward manner where people all know each other. If you did something bad everyone would learn about it which would cause an immediate backfire and you would have to make things right or become an outcast. What is relied on here is the reputation of someone which describes their trustworthiness. Knowing the reputation of members of the society by memory is possible in a small village but becomes quickly impossible as the society becomes larger. It also becomes more complex. For example, one person has agreed to make a delivery at a certain time, but is delayed two hours because of a heavy storm. Who now owes what to whom? Or there is a rich person with a lot of resources and a not so rich person who wants to trade his labor. How does the little guy know that he will be treated fairly? Who does he go to if his overtime isn't paid? Remember, there is no government in a voluntary society. Luckily, we can foresee problems. In a market where there is no government, it is a valuable asset, competitively speaking, to be able to show your potential business partners that you can be trusted. You set yourself up to be checked, and if you don't follow through, then you lose that asset that allowed you to be trusted. One way in which this principle could be formalized and professionalized is as follows. You pay a business for a special kind of database service. With this service you have the ability to create permissions to add an entry, to create permissions to read the database, but no possibility to change or remove entries. The next step is when you engage in a contract with someone that you agree on an arbitrator, who is also paid, who will interpret the actions of the parties according to the contract in case of a dispute. The arbitrator gets an access code to make an entry in the databases of the parties. If there is a dispute and the arbitrator decides against you and you are not willing to comply with the ruling ...then the arbitrator will put his findings in your database. This means that you no longer have a way of showing potential trading partners... ...that you are trustworthy, at least until you make things right. And in this market where such a proof has become the norm... ...you will be at a great disadvantage. Trading partners also require from each other... ...that the arbitrator keeps a publicly accessible list of the unresolved disputes by way of the details of the violator and the full details of the case. People can't just get a new record when they've done something bad because a record that doesn't go back far is more a proof that someone is trying to hide something. In the same way a record hosted by a provider that people can't verify is reliable, is of little value. Personal records are very important. So providers have to make sure there are multiple online, offline and off-site backups. Making them impervious to natural disasters and crime. people will only agree on arbitrators that they trust, because they don't want to be judged unfairly. People will also want arbitrators that are trusted by many other people, so that a strike in the other person's record will have a big impact, lowering the risk of being cheated by the other party. Another differentiating factor is the knowledge the arbitrator has about the specific kind of business that is being done. A dispute about farm animals requires a different set of knowledge than a dispute about microchips. The only way to get a good idea of the behavior of an arbitrator and their performance in a specific field is that they give insight into the cases that they've handled before. They could make the cases anonymous or give people a discount to be able to publish in and cases where someone doesn't go along with the ruling get published anyways. Consumers also have a need in being able to make their case public themselves with possible extra evidence if they think they've been wronged by an arbitrator. Independent organizations could facilitate in all these functions so that people can find out about arbitrators, their specialties their performances, their prices, and to keep them in check. The career of an arbitrator is thus built on making sound judgments and in a voluntary market will face a quick ruin if they stray from this. The above-described system deals with persons and property, but only that property which is mutually recognized. Both parties can perceive to have benefit from a trade and at least temporarily agree on what property is whose and what limits of behavior exists. For example, before you go into a car showroom, you contract that the store and the goods there are not yours and that you will pay for any accidental damages. So what happens when two people have a disagreement about property outside of contractual agreements? Suppose two businessmen want to do mining in the same area, but one of them is using an entrance with his equipment, and the other one wants to pass. Do they draw their guns? What is the solution? Who is actually right? In the same manner as before, these problems can be foreseen. And because they can be foreseen, we come to expect certain proofs and procedures to be adopted to handle the situation. Society at large does not want people to take property that does not rightfully belong to them. So in the case of land, to gain legitimacy in the public view in case of a conflict, You pay for an independent and trusted service of verifying and filing what you have done to the land and when. If you have publicly trusted records that you built a house somewhere 20 years ago, and some other person shows up who declares it is his, yet he has no verifiable and trusted record of this, then we can safely conclude that the second person is either a criminal or deranged. A protection agency would in that case also be willing to draw arms if necessary to protect the legitimate owner. This is also to say that a protection agency cannot simply sell its services to any buyer in any way because they too are scrutinized by the public. If they are viewed as being, above the rules, mercenaries, criminals, they become the opponent of the entire society which has many more guns, resources, manpower, and are all cooperating. In the mining example there is no clear criminal. This means that resorting to strong-arm tactics would be highly suspect. Because it is easy to see that this kind of non-contracted dispute can also occur, it becomes expected from people engaging in new land use, to have a predetermined and knowable list of arbitrators that they are willing to use in such a case. As different fields have different arbitrators specializing in them... ...farming, drilling, mining, etc... ...there will be suitable arbitrators that are successful and respected. We expect these to occur on those lists. All of this would be the reasonable solution. If one of the two parties feels he is being treated unfairly he will always have the trump card of going to the press and making the case public, for which there can be a high price to pay by his opponent.
1: There is much, much, much more to be said, of course, on all of these topics, and there is much more that needs to be fleshed out in all of the different functions and various ways that society will function in the event of the overthrowing of that governor, that, that thing that exists in our minds that somehow gives authority to some collective we that doesn't exist in a political sense to do things that you and I cannot. And we should talk about all sorts of different types of disputes and the ways that they could be resolved in a voluntary society, etc., etc. But the underlying point of today's episode is that government itself is this mythical institution that really exists in our minds. And when we give it power by believing in the authority of its so-called agents and institutions is that is what it ultimately ends up in the enslavement of our society once again there's much much more to be said about this and i have been talking about it for for many months now on the corbett report we will continue to talk about it for many months but i hope at the very least that the basic underlying ideas of today's episodes are not today's episode is not lost on you out there and on that note, we will leave things there. And today, we will leave things with a song. We will leave things with the anarcho-capitalist theme song from YouTube. And this is by Roger Goble. And I will also, or sorry, Randy Goble. And I will also put in a link to the uh, the note that he sent to the Lou Rockwell blog at lourockwell.com, talking about this song, its inspiration, and why he wrote it. And we will leave things there for t- today. But as I say, we will continue to explore this topic in many, 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 many more future episodes and podcast episodes and radio interviews and etc. in the future. So we'll leave things there. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thank you once again to all of those who have subscribed to my newsletter and or purchased DVDs this week. This media is brought to you by you, so I do appreciate that. You can follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash CorbettReport. And of course, you can subscribe for free to all of the RSS feeds at CorbettReport.com so you can stay up to date with all of the latest news and information there at the Corbett Report. So for now, we'll leave you with Randy Goebbel and the anarcho-capitalist theme song.
5: She's got the peace sign button on her lapel. She's got the coexist sticker on her hybrid car. Talking Palestinian oppression in the Middle East. And I like where this is going. But then she tells me I should be forced to buy health insurance. Like Cigna, ain't got enough money already She's got the proverbial gun Literally aimed at my chest And when I balk the conversation is over I say, I am an anarcho-capitalist You're a left-leaning liberal I adhere to the non-aggression principle While you stand in line at the movies To see Michael Moore guy, he's pissed off about the bailout. He's afraid that the government's gonna take all his guns. And he's extremely upset about taxes. And I like where this is going. But then he starts railing about fascists Forget about due process, suspend habeas corpus, nuke the sons of bitches, now ask questions later and when I balk the conversation is over, I see, I am an anarcho-capitalist, you're a neoconservative, I adhere to the non-aggression principle, while you repeat whatever you hear on talk radio. There's a band on stage screaming about anarchy they got the guitars up loud and the beats real fast sticking a middle finger up to authority and i like where this is going but then i delve deeper into their philosophy they're talking egalitarian communes and animal rights no system of arbitration or division of labor no law and order No property rights, because if we never used money and only bartered, and if we relegate ourselves to a loose tribal order, and if no one worked for anybody else, if the state would just abolish itself, because we're all too busy looking cool to bother. If we all just sat around every day smoking weed If punk rock became all acoustic Due to the shutting down of the electric company And if our dreadlocks finally grew together Into one giant hairball of unity Then we'll have finally achieve egalitarian society Think of it as going camping only forever No thanks I am an anarcho-capitalist, you're a socio-anarchist. I adhere to the non-aggression principle, your smell adheres to everything in a 20-foot radius. And when I balk, the conversation's over. I say I'm an anarcho-capitalist while you stand in line at the movies to see Michael Moore. When I balk, the conversation is over. While you repeat whatever you hear on top radio.
3: We don't have to live no, 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 under a system like this. No, no, that it is no, no, it is a no, lie, no, it is a, it is slander against the human race no, to say that this is the only way for no, social no, relations no, to be organized no, no, in which no, we are ruled over no, 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 by a group of thiefdoms
5: who also monopolize
3: our Brapetize education, who thing. tell us that living under feeders is the best and only way of
5: live? And anybody who objects to this is probably got something kind of wrong with them.
3: No, there's got to be some other way. There's got to be some other way of organizing society than some people get to loot other people, people and then badger please and condemn those you. other people please as please the enemies of mankind. You. There has please to be some other way. And we see what that you. other way is. Actually, it is the free market, it's a free society, where all the initiative comes from, the inventions, me. the improvements in our me. standard of
5: living, all of which are completely unsung. Peace and anarchy. Peace and anarchy. And peace but ultimately what this boils down to is that every platitude you learn about the
3: government is the opposite of the and truth. Anarchy. And every one of these platitudes is taught in school, and is intended to create a race of drones that sits back and raises no objection when it's treated like
0: garbage by this institution. My friends, we can do better as a race of mankind